At this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll be looking at the section where uh, Elijah meets the widow, but I will, I will read through to the end of the chapter because it speaks of resurrection, something that is important to remember, that death does not have the final word these days. And so we will be reading 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, it's Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as he was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And after, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her, he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sins to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Please pray with me. Father, this is a very different format, a different way of worshiping, we've just read your word. Would you give all of your people hearts that are hungry, 
for your truth. Ears that want to hear your word. Eyes that can see your beauty. Lord, would you give me as your preacher passion? Jesus would be lifted up as we see our need for him. We pray this in his name. Amen. What we're seeing here today is a battle on a home field. Many of you have probably heard the term home field advantage comes from sports where you have a home team and an away team and an away team travels and especially in today where you have all of the comforts and all the infrastructure of sports. It's a big deal playing at home. You have the comforts at home. You have the routine at home. You don't have to travel. You get to go into your own facilities and probably most of all you have a whole bunch of you know, twenty to 100,000 of rabid screaming fans that are giving you energy and perhaps opposing the other team. Home field advantage can be a big deal. And it's that way in other areas of life, too. You can think about military combat, certainly, if you're fighting on your home ground. That's a big advantage, both in morale and, and, and logistics. You could think about it in politics. Someone who's running for president has often, is thought, a home field advantage in their state to win that state. Many times today, it seems like Satan has a home field advantage as well on this earth. Paul himself calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, certainly someone who has sway on this earth. He rules over those who are unbelievers. You can see countries that seem unassailable to Christianity, like Russia and China and the Islamic nations. You see little growth, but then you see this this great totalitarian regimes that oppressed Christians. You can see how the Christian faith has been swallowed up by apathy and unbelief in Europe. The American church, it seems, is on the outskirts of culture and she's guilty of self-righteousness and materialism. Seems like the advantage goes to Satan that he has the home field advantage. Then if you are honest and open about your own life and you know your own challenges, your own flesh, the addictions, the lusts, the way our hearts run after other idols. It seems that Satan's advantage is real and often unassailable. And yet it's not enough when God acts. Not at all. What does God, I am, the special covenant God of Israel, do in this passage? He sends Elijah to a poor widow who lives under Satan's power through his proxy god, Baal. You see, Baal has not helped her. And when Elijah meets her, she is destitute. She's hopeless on the brink of starvation. And yet, through God's prophet, she finds life. And what we see from this passage is this, that Satan can't even win on his home field. God reaches into this unlikely place and shows a hopeless widow grace and kindness. His power subverts the expectations of all the day. And in doing that, he shows us what kind of God he is. I want you to see today how God beats Satan in his own house, on his home turf, and how you can trust him too. And when you cling on by faith to the true God, you'll bring him glory. So before we jump into this story, let's just stop and get our bearings. Why is Elijah sitting by a dried up stream bed? 
Well, God caused a drought because Israel, his covenant people, chose to forsake him and worship a false god, a local pagan god named Baal, which simply means Lord. Baal was the god of the Phoenicians. Queen Jezebel, who had married Ahab, she came down from Sidon to Israel and she brought Baal with him. And, and Baal was supposed to be the storm god who brought the rain and fertility and life because water was life. Water brings food and gives life. And when Ahab married Jezebel, he effectively chose to divorce I am and marry Baal instead. And so God declares a regional drought through his prophet Elijah. It was a severe mercy to show his people that forsaking him does not bring prosperity, but brings death. And in the meantime, God takes his prophet Elijah, whose name means My God is Yahweh. My God is I am. And he takes him away from his people. He puts them in a brook. Taking him away was a sign of judgment, removing the instrument of his word. And I am shows Elijah grace by providing from him at this brook, by ravens bringing him bread and water, bread and meat. Also a sign of hope that God's not done with his people. But after a time, he allows this little stream to dry up. And he sends Elijah to move to another place, to Zarephath, north of Israel. Now, why? This is a very surprising move. Uh, I am's commands don't make sense for several reasons, and I want us to look at them because it shows us the kind of God he is and his power to work in unexpected ways. The first reason this is very surprising is because God sends Elijah away from the promised land and, and, and to the land of Gentiles. This was incredibly shocking because God was the one who told Jews to avoid contact with Gentiles. They were supposed to be a set-apart people. They were outside of God's blessings and promises. Now, the Jews did do business with them. They would have done trade and commerce, but that's very different from being hosted by one for a couple of years or months. Well, God's showing two things about his character here. First, He's showing that he will withhold blessings when his people reject him. Elijah leaves Israel and will go to bless a Gentile widow while many Israelite households are starving. Why? Because the nation had forsaken him. They rejected God's blessings and so for a time he passes over them and will go show mercy to someone else who doesn't even know him. This should remind you that God is not impressed with religious or righteous people. You don't have anything in yourself that puts you in a position to demand that God blesses you. You can say, but, but my church has been, my family has been in the church for, for generations. I've attended church all my life. I've been a good person. It's not your status. It's not the time that you put in. Your outward works that connect you to God. And in fact, if you put stock in these, this means they are idols that you're using to leverage God to get you to bless him. You could say, well, these Israelites have openly divorced God. How could they expect still blessings? Well, I think they still viewed themselves as righteous. As descendants of Abraham, they had a special entitlement to God. And one of the reasons I say this is because Jesus uses this very story in the passage we read in Luke 4 to hold up a mirror to the face of self-righteous Jews. When Jesus began his ministry, he proclaimed that he was the Messiah 
And the people of his town said, um, aren't you Joseph's son? Didn't you grow up here? In other words, I'm not, I'm not quite buying it. You're not performing signs here that you're performing other places. How Jesus responds is chilling. He quotes from Elijah's time, from this passage, and also uh, Elisha later with Naaman the leper. And in effect, he asks, who receives God's mercy? Is it the righteous Israelite in the land, the people who forsook him? Or is it the humble Gentiles who come to God by faith? Well, they explode. Goes from being a hometown parade to a lynching squad. What made them so deathly mad? Because Jesus exposed that they were not seeking God's grace by faith. In some way, they were banking on their own righteousness and they believed that God owed them. It could be very subtle, but it was there. And Jesus exposes their smug self-righteousness and they burst into flames. Well, dear people, sitting out there, usually sitting in here, you look so good, you look so nice, you act nice. All can be wonderful fruit of God's grace. But there is no way to receive God's mercy except to place your faith in Messiah. Nothing else can do. And if you make your, your righteousness or your goodness or your respectability your calling card, it's your idol. God will pass you over to get your attention, and if you refuse, forever. Let me ask you, do you get angry? Do you get angry when people question your goodness? Or, or maybe when they expose a sin in your life? Perhaps it's their sin that rubs against you and it pops the balloon into your self-righteousness, and you're not so mad that they were wrong, but that they show that you were wrong. Or perhaps you get mad when someone who has made their life a royal mess all of a sudden receives mercy and forgiveness. That's not fair. That anger is a symptom that you don't realize that you are just as much in need of God's grace as they are. Well, I just journey to a Gentile land is, is not just a warning to religious people. It shows a second thing about who God is. It's, it's a picture of his mercy. Our God is a welcoming God. He goes out and of his way to draw people to himself. He, his grace overflows boundaries that we would say are unthinkable. And finally, in Jesus Christ, he comes and breaks all boundaries for those who come to him. It no longer matters if you are a physical descendant of Abraham. What matters is that you come to Jesus, the true son of Abraham, in faith. And God runs to you like the father and the prodigal son. Well, sending Elijah to the Gentiles was shocking. It challenged Israel's understanding of grace, but it gets even worse. Or even more, so we say, more perplexing. Because God sends Elijah to Zarephath. This is confusing. Why Zarephath? Where is Zarephath? It's a little village outside of Sidon. It's a tiny little suburb outside of Sidon. That's in Phoenicia. That's where Queen Jezebel grew up as a child. That is where Baal's backyard is. You see, the Lord sends Elijah straight into enemy turf. This is very important because at the time, people had an understanding that gods were strongest in their own country. In your Bibles, flip 
just two chapters, three chapters, to 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23. God shows Ahab mercy and another prophet, not Elijah, comes and directs him how to fight his enemies in Syria. And so they're victorious. And listen in verse 23, chapter 20, verse 23, how the Syrians respond to this. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. You can go back to chapter 17. But you see how people say, okay, Yahweh has a home field advantage on the hills because that's where his country is. Well, so God decides to challenge that assumption and he decides to beat Baal in his own house. He's already won in Israel. Baal's supposed to provide the rain and I am says no rain and there's a drought. But now he presses it further. He says home field advantage does not matter. Go to Baal's turf and work a miracle. Now today, as you're reading, you know, we read that passage about the God of the hills and the God of the plains. We can say, well, that's silly. God's not confined to a tiny strip of land. God's not limited to that type of thing. But don't we think something similar? Have you ever thought of the secular strongholds about how entrenched the belief of human origins and evolution and, and sexuality and individualism and all of these deeply rooted anti-biblical themes are firmly entrenched in our college systems and our education systems and how that turns out leaders who no longer have a, a biblical perspective, who now find Christianity offensive and even damaging and, and do you ever look at that and say, what can I do about that juggernaut? What can God do about that juggernaut? You think about how the, the media so often today in our country portrays the church negatively. Now, certainly we could say the church is not perfect and, and we have our failings. But have you ever been discouraged by how often the Christians in our country come off as Westboro Baptists, insensitive, uncaring, no one ever seems to cover the good things that, that Christians do. And, and you say, well, that's, you know, that's an uphill battle. What, what can God do? Or maybe on a more personal level, you'll say, can, can God save someone like that? Would he give new life to someone who has never stepped inside of a church before? Never knows anything. How, how could that happen? Someone who just, their God is drugs. Is that beyond God's control, his reach? I'll tell you, I, was, I had the privilege of meeting a chaplain who's maybe 10 years older than I. This past week, we had breakfast together. We chatted a little bit here and there. We were the two chaplains in the course. It's more mental health than chaplains because it's, it's their course, so that makes sense. So we chaplains stick together, and I asked him, how, how did you come to know the Lord? Because he was, he was obviously... Uh, Christian who loved Jesus and said, well, I didn't, I didn't go to church growing up. Um, friends drug me to youth group and a Catholic group once or twice and that was it. He said, I, I left home and 20 years of age and wasn't interested in any of that type of thing and then I joined the army and I was in the infantry and we were wild and crazy. Then I went over to a Persian Gulf War when I was 12 or 13, and 
And I started looking for, for meaning. And, and he said, I could see little ways that the Lord was working in me, but I was still searching and I, I had never been to church. And he said, I went back and I was back stateside. And back then, this was when you still had the phone booths that you would call the AT&T phone booths. I remember this too. Cell phones were just becoming mainstream when I was coming out of basic training. So I didn't have one. I didn't wasn't going to pay the, the premium for it, so I go to the phone booth with my phone card and wait and call home. And he said, as I was in the phone booth, there was just, there was a little track wedged up top. So I said, hmm, I'm interested in these things right now. Took it, put it in its pocket, went home. It was the simple gospel. He said, this is who I've been looking for. And he gave his life to Christ. You would probably not have seen you know, a young man who is not religious in the infantry, wild five, even a couple years later, and say, yes, this is the type of man that God will save. And yet he chose to. And he used a track that was wedged in a phone booth to bring him to Christ. God will work as he wills. He has absolute power. We must not put limits on what he can do or rule out what is possible for him. He is going into Baal's turf and he snatches a hopeless widow from his grasp. He can do anything. Which brings us to the final surprise, the way that God works. He works through a widow. One commentator said, putting widow and provide in the same sentence was an oxymoron. When, when God said, go and a widow will care for you, she would not be the obvious candidate. It would kind of be like saying today, go to a single mom who is barely subsisting government aid and she will provide all of your needs. Widows did not have the means to care for others. They were the ones who needed care because they were outside the safety net of society. They had no social security. And you see, this woman here is at the very last bit of her resources, and so Elijah meets her and he asks her first for a little bit of water. And then once he gets his foot in the door, he asks for some food. Listen to her response in verse 12. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it. And die. Uh, that's a good translation. Literally, the second part of that verse, there's just a rapid fire of verses. I am gathering a couple of sticks. I may go in, prepare it for myself, and we will eat and we will die. That's her outlook. That's the grim reality of her life. She's on the brink of death. She's about to go home and watch her son die and then follow after him. She is extremely needy. She has no way to support Elijah. And what I want you to see is that you are a lot more like this woman than you think. And you can see here her desperate need and her frank despair. And I think this is where it's easy for us today to say, okay, that's great, but that's not me. I'm not like her. Now, I've been away two weeks out of the last three. So I was away for a week came back for a week, and then was away for a week. Both times I was in San Antonio, Texas, Fort Sam Houston, where the Army teaches medical skills, and then I flew back on Friday night. 
And I remember three weeks ago, three Sundays ago today, maybe about this time, just a little earlier, I was sitting on a bench in the newer part of the renovated Philly airport. And, and now it looks like one of those places out of a futuristic movie, like Minority Report. There's flashing screens everywhere. Each, each seat has its own iPad where you can surf the web or order things, spend lots of money. And there I was. I broke out my own iPad to read from the Old Testament for my Bible reading. I was in Exodus and I was reading about the plagues in Egypt and how God had saved Moses and the people from Pharaoh. And as I was reading on my iPad about Israel and Egypt, I couldn't help but think how different my world was from theirs. You know, I can open now my hotel room with my phone. I can get and reserve my seat for my airplane and scan the pass on my phone. I can get an app where I, I could even order food so that it's ready at the airport if I want to pay an arm and a leg from my phone. I have constant access to the world as I can fly. And even as I fly, I, I have the Internet in the airports. And if I want to pay for it in the plane, constant feed of, of food and knowledge and entertainment is at my grasp. And I had to admit, as I was reading the Old Testament on my iPad with my earbuds and playing music to block out the rest of the sound, thinking, are we alike at all? Or am I completely different from Moses and Israel who walked out of Egypt? Or this widow who was staring starvation in the face with her son. After all, I've never been hungry in my life unless I've wanted to. And so I've been thinking about that for the last three weeks. And in God's providence, both just the, the thoughts of it and, and certainly events that have conspired, has been obvious to me that I'm a lot closer than at first glance. These last three weeks, I've, I've certainly realized my physical needs Yes, I can fly around in an airplane, but there's a lot of infrastructure that goes on. I can't do that by myself. It changes the way my life looks, but not my abilities. In fact, as the thinking is, I'm in Texas, and the coronavirus comes around. If the planes are grounded, I'm not going home, because all I can do is walk and swim. That's all I can do in my body. And in fact, as um, someone who was on the bus, we had some soldiers who were nearby, and so they drove and had their cars. And all of a sudden, these younger, lowly enlisted could do a lot of things that us officers, we officers could not do because we didn't have cars. Realizing, yes, can accomplish a lot, but my natural abilities are limited. And then, of course, we've had natural disasters and sicknesses. We've had the natural disaster in Tennessee where houses were leveled and, and people died. We've had COVID-19 that is spreading an alarming rate throughout the world. And while it is not particularly virulent, it's very infectious and it is claiming lives. And all of a sudden we're realizing our vulnerability and our limitations. And even if we are to emerge completely unscathed, there is finally death. There is no amount of technology that can prepare you or prevent you from dying. Even if the coronavirus is completely contained, even if we had a, a bulletproof vaccine that would come out, you will die someday unless Jesus returns first. And, and I submit to you that although your life looks a lot different from this widow, you're a lot closer to her than you think. You are still a very needy person physically and spiritually. 
just like her. The idols that you run to, they fail you. I want you to see here how her God failed her. Baal has failed this woman. The God who is supposed to be the God of life and fertility and blessing can't provide for this widow in his own stronghold. Now, in fact, Sidon, a great trading power, could never provide food for their people. They were wealthy, but they couldn't grow food. Now, you could just explain this through geography, but it's worth asking the question, well, wait a moment. If you're worshiping a God of rain and fertility and you can't feed yourself, what do you make of that? How's that working for you? But isn't that the case of our little gods and idols today, too? We put so much stock as a society in secular science and psychology. And there's good in these areas when when they're used to serve God, when we have the presuppositions that God is the creator and we can go exploring his world and human body and mind, and there's things that we can learn. But when these these become gods, when it's promised to give you purpose in life, when it's going to give you meaning, it's going to tell you how to live, you know what's really fun? is to go back 100 or 150 years and read the magazines of the day, the so-called experts who, who are telling you how to live and proudly proclaim the latest, latest modern and scientific methods. Normally it's laughable. We realize that you didn't know what you were talking about. And people 150 years will look at us and probably say the same things. What you're looking for to provide you meaning and to provide you pride and joy... That was really shallow. Think of our technology. So much of it good is the way that we can meet together today and yet studies have shown when technology becomes all-encompassing it causes loneliness, depression, and suicide. And we could go on and on and on again. Things that even are good at first but when we make them God they enslave us and they make us like this woman despairing of life and starving The Bible describes our natural heart bent as the same of this woman on our own, trying to make sense of life, running after idols to meet our needs, and in the end, being bitterly disappointed, finding that they fail you. But here what you see is God in his mercy breaking through Satan's stronghold, reaching out to this widow with his life-giving provision. Elijah asked her for food, and she in effect said, I've got nothing. And he makes her a promise. Verse 13 and 14. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And how did she respond to this promise? She demonstrates a feeble faith in Elijah's God. She already knows that Elijah is an Israelite and probably a prophet because in the beginning when he asks her for food, she swears by the Lord, your God, not my God, but Yahweh, your God, I have nothing. And she realizes, what do I have to lose? Baal has failed me. And so she takes a trust, a chance, and trusts in I am's prophet 
And, and she gives what little she has, the last of her resources that can't give her life, that can't do her any good. She lays them down. And the Lord turns it into an unending fountain of life-giving provision. Christians, this is our God. A God who can reach into the most unthinkable place, to one of the most unlikely people, who can challenge and change the most pressing problems. Your God can defeat Satan in his most secure stronghold. He is far better than Satan or whatever modern idol he hides about because in the end, Satan can only offer death. And what we celebrate today is that Jesus has come and experienced death for you and promises true liberation. He offers you new resurrection life, abundant life. As he says, the strong man is bound. You are the treasure that Jesus takes and carries away and brings you freedom. I'll ask you today, are you trapped in sin or an idol? Do you have something that has is, that is whipped you? You are discouraged. You have failed it again. You cannot beat it. You don't even want to fight it anymore. You're saying, maybe I can't. I am, I am literally addicted to this thing. It's giving me death, but I can't escape. Well, that's true. On your own, you can't. But you serve a God who can reach down and rip, you, rip it out and give you life. You see here how he promises to meet us in our need. Now, today, that doesn't mean necessarily our every physical need or whim. But this picture here of unending flour and oil is the God who satisfies. We as a church need to be a place where we view ourselves as fellow addicts, fellow sinners, idolaters, who have in Jesus a new identity, a new purpose, and a new power as we fight together against the lusts of our flesh. And so I ask you today, How do you respond to the Lord? I am. He's not only the Lord who who brought the widow from the brink of desperation and starvation, but but now as Jesus, God in the flesh, who claims to bring the liberation of the captives, freedom from the poor. How do you respond to that prophet who promises he brings deliverance? It may be that you need to realize your heart is like the Jews who heard And you think you have something to offer God. You have something that God wants and he won't love you until he gives it. If you're honest, you do look down on other people. Maybe you struggle to pray for people that you believe are outside of God's reach, outside of God's control. Perhaps you are in bondage to an idol or an addiction and you don't think you can give it up. In each of these cases... Remember that Satan has no longer any lasting power. Jesus has defeated him on his own home field advantage. Turn to Jesus in faith like the widow did to Elijah's God. These little crumbs that I have hoarded for my life that can do me no good. All I've gotten is misery for the hoarding. Let me drop them and Jesus run to you and trust you to give me all that I need. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that the offer of the gospel is to come freely and to drink 
and to eat without money, no purchase required. Would each one of us find the joy and freedom today of owning Jesus as our Lord and laying down our little crumbs at his feet and instead receiving the feast and to taste and see that he is good. We pray this in his name. Amen.